0: Podcast 70, the review of Jeff Lawton's Food Forests DVD. Sponsored by my buddies at Uh, They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. So Helen Atta and I just finished watching the Food Forest movie with Jeff Lawton. And uh, my my initial
1: reaction is, is I think it's probably one of the top five permaculture videos, and Helen's nodding her head. I think it's one of the better films I've seen. It reminds me of my all-time favorite food forest project I got to look at and be a part of in Panama, and uh, I got to see that at the end. And this is... Uh, What's so wonderful about this film is it starts you at the beginning and shows you six months, a year, three years, ten years. So you get to see all the stages and all the principles in one film. I think it's just wonderfully done. And uh, and Jeff Lawton himself? He seems to know what he's talking about. He
0: seems pretty sharp. He does. I, I really like Jeff Lawton, and, and I'm going. I'm about to pick on a couple of things that he said, but you know, really, uh, at, at any point where I differ in opinion from Jeff Lawton, he's probably right, and I'm probably wrong. But because uh, he, he's actually out there doing it, and he's doing awesome, awesome stuff. This is this is. Uh, and we got. I should say that we, we were uh, loaned this DVD by Caleb and Krista, um, and uh, so they've been in a couple of podcasts in the past. So, uh, but, but um, anyway, and we both took lots and lots of notes. You took, how many pages of notes do you have there? About four. About four pages. Okay. (laughs) See, now I was, I was fishing for some of the comments that you had to say about Jeff Lawton that maybe you don't want to share in a podcast.
1: I thought that he had an excellent way of blending practical and science, good observation skills and good science skills. So he explained natural farming or ecological farming principles in about half the time that other people that practice it would explain it, for example. Wes Jackson, who has done a wonderful job of mimicking a natural prairie system as opposed to a forest system, or, or Masanobu Fukuoka, who has mimicked both a forest and a grass system. This guy, uh, Jeff Lawton, really has a lovely way of explaining what he's doing.
0: I, I, I agree. I, I kinda thought he had a, like a real casual, like coasting along way of presenting it. And yet really what was accomplished in what was it, about an hour? Yeah, and what he what he what he conveyed in an hour was uh, was amazing, uh, um, and made it seem so simple and and obvious. It, it started off a little dry. Uh, we it, it kind of has you starting off in this like classroom like environment. and He's got a whiteboard and he's drawing trees and he's trying to talk about the different layers and levels and and uh, how you start off with ninety uh, percent legumes and ten percent fruit trees, and then um, when you uh, get down the road, like maybe seven eight years later, it'll be reversed. It'll be 90% fruit trees and 10% legumes. But uh, then it goes into like, okay, now we're going to go out and we're actually going to plant one. And uh, he's he's dug a big swale, and uh, he plants it up, and it's like, okay, here we are. At, uh, at day zero. And then it's like, okay, And then here it is a month later. And here it is two months later. Here it is a year later. And then let's go look at some older food forests and some older food forests. And then at the end of the movie, we're looking at something that was abandoned for seven years and is still a, a functioning food forest.
1: I actually liked the dry part in the beginning because he sets out the principles. So he talks about the three main principles for any kind of natural farming any kind of mimicking nature. And the first one is layers. And in this case, of course, layers of the forest are really easy to see. It's a little harder to see the layers when you're mimicking a grass system or a prairie system. But he lays out exactly... All the seven to ten layers of a forest. And then the second principle is succession, basic lessons from a natural system, from ecology, how nature repairs itself, which is the succession process. And then the third principle is time and working within specific timing, specific natural events, water events, cold, hot events, so that you can then speed up or work within the relationship of natural succession. I, I thought that was really well done, how he lays it out, and then he tells you what he's going to tell you with the three principles and then shows you as, as you're out there. And he goes in great detail as to which specific plants are the recovery plants of succession and uh, actually so much more detail in terms of, of how many different layers of plants are going to be the first succession plants or the pioneer plants, the recovery plants, all legumes, but you have annuals, ground covers, you have leguminous shrubs, leguminous trees, and then the ten percent trees that will ultimately be maintained in the uh, in the functioning food forest system that are that are the long term legumes. it was pretty pretty amazing, I thought.
0: So now, uh, uh, a couple of years ago, um, I visited with you, and um, your opinion of, perma- of the word permaculture was low. And then you went and saw the food forest down in Panama that you were just talking about. And it seems to me like moments, like the very first moment that you got hold of a, of a computer after going to Panama, you sent me an email saying how excited you were and you've seen this and it was awesome. And then when the time came for you to uh, put together your website, uh, and then you, you worked the word permaculture into your website, veganicpermaculture.com. And, uh, and, then, and then this last summer I got an email from you where it's kind of like uh, you expressed some frustration when trying to communicate with some people about permaculture that it didn't seem rooted enough their approaches some some permaculture approaches seem to be more about um, uh, happy thoughts than about being rooted in science and experience and um, uh, and you were you were contemplating um, uh, drifting away from the word permaculture again now um, my question to you is now that you 've seen this video, how do you feel about the word? permaculture.
1: that's funny that is exactly how I feel Jeff Lawton is is so excellent in his his approach and his using both the practical and the scientific, and when I use the word scientific, I basically mean good observation skills. Science has a bad name and and well deserves it because we have brought about things like the Green Revolution with science, but, but ultimately science is is looking at nature through nature's own eyes and observing without lots of humanistic thoughts. And sometimes I worry that we move so far away from science that we look at nature with humanistic thoughts that are just non-scientific thoughts. So when I see what Jeff Lawton did, it makes me really excited about wanting to use the word permaculture. And I realize all of my teachers and all of the systems that I've been lucky enough to be a part of from prairie systems to forest systems to agricultural systems that mimic natural systems are all a form of permaculture if you look at these these specific principles using layering using succession using time trying to to work with interrelationships trying to manage the interrelationships that are already present in a natural system. So when we talk about it that way, when we really look at the natural world and don't try and put our own human ideas and mythology and magic on natural systems, then that's what I mean by permaculture and when I hear Jeff speak about it, clearly that's what he means by permaculture and I'm very happy to use the word permaculture in that case. A <laughs> um, little,
0: little cyclic and, and I think appropriately cyclic. I think that um, uh, there are times when permaculture is put to the test and the uh, the people that are being tested aren't up to the task.
2: Um,
0: I also think that, you know, when when I think of... Agricultural science. Your image always pops into my head because I can I see you down there with the stuff that uh, like like the little frames over the soil and you're counting all the weeds and you're documenting them and you've got them all you know and it's like okay now we're gonna come back in a week and measure this again and and we're gonna you know uh, uh, track it everything we're gonna say we had 40 percent more 40 42.6 percent more growth using this trial over here than that one because I've just been there as you've done this so many times. So um at the same time I, I appreciate what you're saying about that. I to me it's like there's science, a foundation we can stand on, and then there's so-called science where somebody's fudged some numbers because you know they wanted to keep their job and uh, or all the variations thereof and and so it's like oh well, there's 27 studies that sh- that that show this and you happen to know that all 27 of those studies were funded by the bad guys and so all 27 studies are bullshit and so and granted while that's under the label of science therefore it must be true it's like no there was no funding to show the contrary and um, where in reality it is the contrary which is actually true now um, and in this movie uh, and I know that you are very passionate about science and you're like well where is the science time I bring up anything that you don't agree with you're like well where's the science and uh, where's the study that shows that supports what you're saying there and, uh, and so I feel like okay here we just saw Jeff Lawton show some stuff at no point in time do we see uh, a white paper which was published in a respected journal or anything, we saw the evidence we saw the proof we saw the system functioning, and we also saw a system that was seven that was abandoned for seven years, and it was still pumping out food so uh i i i I'm so glad that you got to see this and and be all smitten with permaculture again
1: <laughs> indeed.
0: So all right, let's let's uh, let's start working on your list. What do you got there?
1: Well, I thought what was really exciting as I think about how to do this in a temperate climate, because I think it's really easy in the tropics, I was blown away by how quickly one can use what he calls recovery plants and repair a system in the tropics. Things grow so fast, it's so wet, you have a rainy season that that boggles the imagination. And so... I was thinking, oh, what plants then would we use for what Jeff is doing? So, for example, he has um, he has first, second, and third recovery plants, and the first are. All annuals, meaning that they only survive a year, and then technically they would be gone from the system. Actually, he says they're gone from his system in six months. That that wouldn't happen here in, in a temperate climate uh, in general. And they're all legumes, so there are, or they're nitrogen fixers. And the first are ground covers. Uh, he uses cowpea and lupins in this example. I'm sure he uses others in other examples. And then leguminous shrubs, nitrogen-fixing shrubs. And then his second recovery plants are medium-sized leguminous trees, so nitrogen-fixing trees. And then the third recovery plants are long-term legume trees, like one of my favorite tropical trees, which is the Inga edulis, or the ice cream bean, that that uh, is a wonderful uh, nitrogen fixer that produces these incredible fruits that uh, you can buy all over the markets in South America. So I was thinking, so which plants would we use in the arid northwest we don't actually have legumes that fit into these three categories of recovery on on my farm I used exclusively the the first two the the Annual legumes that are ground covers, and some legumes that are shrubs, uh, but there aren't uh, at least that fit into the system as I can think of it right now i can't i can 't think of a lot of, um, of uh, mid mid legume trees mid sized legume trees that then would be used for Uh, for mulch that you would that you would basically cut off and he cuts them off at about uh, at about head height uses the legumes the leaves from these legumes to then mulch the trees that he wants to do and then they regrow and eventually they're killed off and of course Paul why did he cut the leaves of those legumes?
0: Well, there's that. But I wanted to use the word pollarding. The word you're the word you're looking for is pollarding. And and when I took this master gardener class from well you. Uh, 15 years ago uh, I believe your position was is there's there's no uh, justification for pollarding um, although I think you were talking about like for an urban ornamental perspective in that which case yeah there isn't much but but in this case he was pollarding uh, and, and then the idea is you, you cut it and then it'll regrow But um, and then you were saying you don't know of many that would do that I mean what about Siberian pea shrub uh, or seaberry or um, uh, I mean isn't there? there's going to be a, a ton of, of uh, uh Nitrogen-fixing shrubs that 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 do well in this area,
1: wouldn't there be? Oh yeah, the shrubs. I'm not talking about. In my system, I used both uh, the annuals and the shrubs, but it's the mid-sized trees that that we don't have. Actually, we don't have the same kind of diversity within our forest system that a tropical system does. I was trying to think in in, in certain parts of the United States that are temperate. Definitely, there are these these mid-level trees. So you have the tallest trees and then the mid-level trees and then, of course, shrubs and smaller shrubs and ground covers. But I was trying to think of one that would work. I mean, there's there's some alders uh, that are nitrogen fixers, but I uh, would be a little hesitant to put them into any other system because they, they can certainly take over. And they're also not drought-hardy enough. Uh, but I just need to think about I, I, my work is mainly with uh native plants from this area, so if you start looking at uh at other species there's some mongolian species that that might work um, but again it, it uh it's it's much more easily done in the tropics than uh here in the uh a high desert of uh, western montana and oregon and washington so i was kind of thinking about like i'm curious if you were to a black
0: locust in there or honey locust the problem with that is i'm thinking like if you did chop and drop the problem with black locust is is that in that respect is what you're looking for is something that's going to decompose and and nurture the soil but black locust has that uncanny ability of never rotting <laughs> And so it seems like it's one of those things where it's like, well, maybe when it's small enough, it does rot. At least, at least I, I know that the bark will rot. And and I think that if you're talking about small branches and the like, it's going to be dominantly bark. But um, I'm kind of, I, and, I, and I also know that once the wood naturally ages, it rots. But if you cut it when it's green, it, it like, it still has all that antifungal built up in it, and it won't rot. So I would think in that case it doesn't work. Now I know Han Locust isn't as much as black locust, so it might rot a little bit better. But I'm, I'm I kind of think maybe uh, it, I I, I'm, I know that it still has that non-rotting some of that a lot of that non-rotting capacity. So I'm I'm really kind of curious. Maybe smaller bits of it do rot okay. I I I'd, I'd, I'd really like to get some feedback from somebody on that on permies maybe. But um, as far as as mid-level stuff, boy, well, you know, I'm kind of thinking too. Like, what would be a tree smaller than a black locust that would be a nitrogen-fixing tree, but bigger than a Siberian pea shrub. And ah, I'm with you. I'm
1: not. I'm. I'm stumped. Well, we definitely have alders in terms of native species here, uh, but I think, and I don't know exactly how I feel about what uh, Jeff said, but I think Jeff's point is that we can, as permaculturists, take plants from all over the world and work them into the systems.
3: Uh,
1: And certainly the food forest I saw in Panama was not all Panamanian plants, not by any stretch of the imagination. It wasn't even all South American and Central American plants, and there were a heck of a lot of plants to choose from. There were plants from Asia and from Africa as well in, in this, this jungle. So that, that would be the research to, that, that needs doing. But the principles are there, and actually, I'm really excited now to, uh, to play with it. Right now, in my beginning of a, a food forest, I've got the ground cover down, and I'm really excited because I put the ground cover down in March. And uh, minimally disturb the soil i I had some natural water systems and swales, so i didn 't have to disturb the system as much as Jeff did to get in swales. I, I had some natural swales that i could could actually work around and i had uh, I have a spring above this meadow, and there was some um, subsoil water, so I was able to choose uh, to work right around that. And, uh, and I know this land very well. I've known it since I was, I've known this land for 40 years, so I knew where the wet spots were. And the, uh, the clover, uh, plus you could tell from the vegetation if you read the land what, what were, was wet sites. This, uh, this clover has, uh, has flourished for the five months that I've been away uh, with virtually no water in July and August, which is very exciting to see. And some of the species I planted and mulched uh, prodigiously, I might add, didn't have water for, my goodness, for for. Two months anyway, and now they're all a lot of them lost their leaves, but they're all coming back now. And some of them are native, some of them are Montana native fruiting shrubs. Uh, none of them, except the clover or legumes, because I wanted to get the fruiting species in.
3: Uh,
1: but now I'm kind of excited about throwing in some legumes and uh, throwing in uh, some mid-sized leguminous trees and see where I can, I can go with that.
0: So this whole idea of a food forest. I mean, granted, you saw it in Panama, Mm -hmm. and and then you're tasted up like I'm gonna I want to so make that happen in Montana, and and then now you've seen this, which is uh, not tropical, but I believe it was subtropical is what they were saying that we just saw. But of course, one of the things you pointed out is you can do this. Anywhere, and uh, and of course, uh, uh, Sepp Holzer does this in climate that's very similar to ours. But um, uh, so you had a, a, I'm sure that before watching this movie, you had a really good idea of how you're going to build a food forest in Montana. But now that you've seen this, does it give you more confidence? Does it give you more ideas? What?
1: Well, it makes me want to look for more than just the the annual. Shrub and uh, and uh, ground cover legumes. I I see how vital that is to to maintaining the system. A lot of uh, a lot of the permaculture systems I believe are too heavy on carbon cycling and not building soil rapidly enough because they don't use enough legumes in their systems, uh, which is what I loved about about Fukuoka system is that it was so reliant on on annual legumes like the uh like clovers, which is one of the reasons that I've been using clovers for so many years. So I think that would be the main thing that I'd like to look into, is more more small tree, large shrub legumes that could fit into the system and then could be mulched in the same way that I saw in Panama and that Jeff Lawton's doing here, that... Uh, that basically allows you to release the plants that you want to grow into the sunlight and at the same time fertilize them, and ultimately then they would be gone from the system. Uh, there's other ways to do it, though. I, I was really lucky to visit uh, this incredible garden in southern Idaho uh, along a river right in the middle of the sagebrush desert in uh, in uh, southern Idaho, Close to the Snake River, and uh, it was 35 years old, but basically what uh, what he did was just start planting trees, and then planting fruit trees, and then he's got a little garlic business, so the garlic is sort of scattered everywhere, and then he's kind of just let it do what it's wanted, so a lot of the native species have moved back in, and you'll find uh, Wolf willow, sal- salix exigua coming in from the river and hidden under it you'll find peach trees and plum trees and a little more managed beds of strawberries in a big tire and, and, uh, grape vines Thompson seedless grapes, which are hard to even get to fruit in this climate, dangling from from the trees and with with abundant grapes. It was just an exciting garden and then a regular, more uh, you know more cultivated garden of vegetables, but um, I just wanted to get my hands on it and start releasing some of these fruit trees and using the uh, using the natives that it had sort of stolen in as mulch so that, there's a, that's another way of, of going about it too is to start with a forest system and release instead of doing a lot of tilling up of the soil the way Jeff Lawton does or Sepp Holzer does to start with a forest and start releasing plants and planting the plants that you want
0: encouraging one over the other.
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
0: So uh, evolving a, an existing forest into a food forest that might be more of what you're keen on.
1: Yeah, and I have that opportunity where I am, so I've got what I'm doing in the meadow area, but on the edge of the springs, there are a, a whole bunch of native prunus species, wild plums, wild, wild uh, pin cherries, and so uh, a couple of things I'd like to do is to, is to release plants in the spring area and uh, do some grafting and some budding so that uh, I can have some prunus species and some malus species that are are budded onto the uh, the wild the wild species that are already there already have good root systems but also then start using the, the uh, willows as mulch and plant some other species so um, I think I'm going to do both options I think it might be hard to use willows as mulch because they might start new willow trees. They absolutely will, absolutely will, which is why this guy in uh, southern Idaho has mostly Salix exigua, now or wolf willow, uh, because he just stopped fighting it. He just let it do what it wants. But what a wonderful fertilizer to uh, to do um, to do pruning every year. You just put it down and it and it grows back for free.
0: What, what's next on your list?
1: Let's see, what is next on my list here? Oh, we didn't talk about the legumes, Paul. Why they mowed the legumes, why they prune the legumes. Yeah, you
0: were trying to get me to go down that path, but you know, I'm just gonna bring you pain on that one. You you sure you wanna go down there?
1: I do want to go there because Jeff Lawton supports my concept that the only way to have a release of nitrogen from legumes into the soil so that other nearby plants will take it up in any kind of quantity is to either mow them or prune them and he showed that beautiful diagram by the way more of the dry stuff I think you were talking about where when you mow or in this case they were pruning pruning the leguminous trees then you have a a sloughing off or a dying back of the root system to balance itself with, with all the branches that you've cut off, and as that system dies, the rhizobium or the Frankia or whatever the the, the uh, microorganism that's helping fix the nitrogen from the atmosphere associated with the roots are then released into the soil so you get a carbon breakdown of the root and you get the nitrogenous breakdown of the rhizobium nodules. He didn't mention, but good science also shows us that those nodules are full of phosphorus as well as nitrogen. So you have this quick release of nutrients into the root zone and then plants next next to that can can take those nutrients up. So as Jeff showed us, uh, Paul, it is is a system that has to be maintained by pruning or mowing, or of course what's been done traditionally for a hundred years in modern agriculture, which is to till in. Okay,
0: are you done? You ready? I am. Okay, so um, <clears throat> here's the, I, I mean everything that you said, I believe 100%. Like when you prune the top of the tree, you have root die-off that that matches uh, proportionately what you've cut. Um, And and it it, it seems odd that it should be so proportional and that the die-off should be like that without actually cutting a root or something like that. But it does happen, and I know that that is true. I hereby validate that my opinion is lined up with yours on that point. However... At no point did I hear Jeff Lawton saying the word "only," which was the word that you used. Only that this is the only way. Now um, I I know that that you have expressed that. Uh, now you just mentioned cutting and tilling, um, and and you left and out mowing. and mowing, which is effectively cutting. Right. Um, but you left out stressing. Which you were very emphatic about with Fukuoka systems when you were there that that's that that's what he did is is, is uh, stressing it through flooding mm-hmm. instead of doing flooding for um uh, months and months he would do flooding for a couple of days yeah. and um <clears throat> but um and I agree that 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 will also have a large nitrogen release so so you know the cutting and the, the stressing of any kind will have a large nitrogen release, much larger than the nitrogen release that happens while the plant is undisturbed and alive. Now, granted, when the whole plant dies, it has a larger uh, nitrogen release release then also. However, I still believe, and I've gotten support from Toby Hemingway on this, I still believe that uh, as the plant goes day by day I mean if you consider let, let's see if I can say words just just English language that may be persuasive to you consider the teeny tiny little hairs on the roots um once you have a little root hair going does it Stay on there throughout the season, or or does it slough roots off, slough off root hairs uh, continuously?
1: Absolutely, it sloughs off root hairs.
0: Okay, and then do those root hairs contain any nitrogen? And notice how I use the word any, which means 0.
1: 000 .0000001 still count. Uh, they can, but not necessarily. <laughs> But you
0: did leave up impossible... (laughs) So uh, I'm going – I I think that the way that we get a lot of the nitrogen from a plant – and granted, um, uh, if you're going to say – if we were to say that if you were to go out there and kill the plant outright, totally kill the plant, that um, – and it gives off 100 units of nitrogen, and we can change the size of that unit depending on the size of the plant, I think that while it is alive, then you don't cut the plant – that, that throughout the season it's going to give off two to ten units of nitrogen throughout throughout the growing season, whatever that growing season maybe it's a, maybe it's a perennial maybe it's an annual but you know and I, and I can get into a lot more details about that but that's that's currently my belief and and at one point in time and I'm pretty sure it's in a podcast, maybe I should go dig it up I got you to agree to. uh, We didn't use the word units, but effectively two percent that that you believe that it could slough off during its lifetime, which of course is tiny compared to point two percent. I'm pretty sure it was two (laughs) percent. Maybe I do need to go look it up. Maybe maybe somebody listening to this podcast can can go look it up and and, and give me the 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 podcast number and the uh, the point in time where Helen said two percent, so that way. I can throw it back at her, but at this moment, though, you're saying that um, uh, Jeff Lawton supports your position of, and you use the word only that the only way, and and I I watched very carefully during those parts because I was sitting next to you that he never said only. It was presented as a way.
1: Well, no, it was B-way. He said the way. He didn't say the only way, but he said the way. But since then, since we discussed this last, I've done a literature review, and the only situation where there's any science that that nitrogen is released from plants that are actually still growing is actually in a in a riparian system slide alders they call them um, uh, well, it's, I'll, I don't need to tell you which species, but some alder plants have been known to release nitrogen into into a stream system, and in fact, in in certain cases, they've seen an increase in algae because of the uh, of the loss of nitrogen actually into the water. But in a soil system, the only thing that is even comparable is uh, uh, non native plant yellow sweet clover in uh, in native prairies grows it 's a biennial it uh, it uh, flowers and dies and after it dies there's a release and an actual change of Nitrogen in the prairie system, but still, I guess that doesn 't count because the yellow sweet clover has to die first so the only only thing in the literature that that shows actual growing plants releasing enough nitrogen into the system within a, a short relatively short amount of time is this alder over over long periods of time, nitrogen can be released because the plants go through cycles of of um, Thank you hibernation, so to speak, uh, or, or shutting down for winter or shutting down for the dry season. So over time, you can see uh, an, an addition. But if you just grow a legume and you put your fruit tree right next to it, you're not going to expect to uh, get away with not fertilizing that plant with some kind of nitrogen or mulching plants or using plants to mulch it if you want to have any production at all. That's all I'm saying, that if you, if you want to think about it practically,
0: you,
1: you need to add some form of nutrients.
0: Uh, you know, and absolutely. And this is, what we saw Jeff Lawton doing here was that, you know, he started all this food for us very nitrogen-fixing intensively. So there was, he, he had, you know, this, this, this massive barrage of nitrogen fixers, and then the idea was that he was going to send those out manually while while giving the fruit producing trees, but by then as as those um, other trees would break down, then they're just pumping all sorts of nitrogen into the soil. So um, uh, yeah, we 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 saw that. And as far as and, and <clears throat> it's so much it's, it's so complicated. There's so much to it that that um, uh, if you're going to not bring in manures, which I don't believe in this video, we ever saw them bring in any manures, did we?
1: Well, I didn't see it. But then when he was talking. Talking about uh, uh, the the garden, uh, the kitchen garden. That was it. His kitchen garden. He said it's exactly the way we do the forest garden, but uh, uh, it's just on a smaller scale. And, and then he mentioned that in this kitchen garden we're mulching, which is of course what they're doing in the forest garden too, and we're also bringing in compost, worm castings, and compost tea, uh, to feed the permanent beds. So my sense was that they're only bringing in compost and worm castings and compost tea to the kitchen garden, uh, which was kind of disappointing because in, in my system towards the end and in Fukuoka's system, uh, much less was brought in to a kitchen kind of garden
0: yeah I, was, um, I know that another video of his the soils video that that he does uh, a bunch of composting stuff and and and, and I and, and so as long as we're talking about parts that were disappointing I you know I'm uh, he had cardboard he was using cardboard at one point and I I uh, would I would prefer to see Jeff Lawton specifically not use cardboard, but he did it in a soils video too, where he's using cardboard. And this is this is just a point where I suppose he and I uh, have a different approach. And and again, I'm going to qualify it to say that uh, he's probably right and I'm probably wrong. And I'm just a little too paranoid about the the, the, the gunk that's used to um, to process to to make us to get cardboard to to get the lignins to to. The up, uh, for cardboard um <clears throat>
1: I, I agree with you on that. That I think there probably are things that that uh, are not beneficial in cardboard, but there's so much of it in our world. Uh, and I have some, you, you know. And I looked at it and I said, Wow, this is exactly what I'm going to use this winter. I'm going to get as much growth out of the uh, legumes and grasses that are are uh, in this wet spot that is my garden. And then uh, when it starts getting cold and they're clearly not growing anymore, I'm going to take all this cardboard that. Uh, that I used in moving and uh that is just sitting there and would go to uh go to the landfill otherwise or recycling otherwise and I'm going to recycle it into my garden to uh to be the mulch that puts that legume right back into the soil where it will die and finally release nitrogen. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm I'm concerned about um, longer-term health stuff. I just I just think that while there's a bunch of known toxins that end up inside of cardboard and newspaper, like like you know uh, inside the material itself, like ignoring the inks and the tapes issues. Um, I and I think that there's there could also be a lot in there that we haven't figured out yet, or or that we haven't determined as toxic or or uh, Combinations of different chemicals that could turn out to be bad. So um, I, I'd have to say that it's more of a of a general concern that I have that most people don't have. And granted, when you when you bring a lot of these materials to soils, uh, a lot of the mushrooms and whatnot will, will just you know uh, make everything right as rain. But I I think that it's only probably making 90% of it right as rain, and it's the last 10% that is of concern to me. And I'm I'm shooting for a different you know level, I suppose. Um, I'm a little more anal retentive Um, so what else do we got on your list?
1: I think that might be... Well, come on, you have four pages. Well, a, a lot of it was taking notes for me to um, help me with my wording and thinking of things. I liked his term, interactive diversity equals stability in a system. It's. It, he's basically saying, I think more eloquently, what I say when I say that my natural farming is managing the interrelationships. He's working on an interactive... Diversity within a system, and that that's what brings the stability both in nutrient cycling and in uh, weed and insect and disease pest management. So I, I really like that term. I like his term about uh, fast carbon pathways. That basically what we do when we manage interrelationships, when we have interactive biodiversity, is that we're we're speeding up the carbon pathways that happen now naturally in, in uh, forest and grass prairie systems uh, on their own um, what
0: well, along those lines, I um, I, I wrote that you don't have pest problems, and and he talked about how you don't have pest problems when you have this kind of diversity. There's just there's just none, and and you think about it, if you're going to be in a tropical or subtropical area, that would be one of the things that would be a primary problem is to have uh, insects and weeds and whatever else that could totally come in and, and wipe out, devastate your crop, especially if you were to attempt to do a monocrop. But his point is is that here he. He, uh, he's been doing it for probably decades and and he has no past problems you don't have pest problems, and I think this is the point that is the number one point that I want to take to the people that are um, either organic or, or even conventional, that um, uh, and the, the number one point to present to them is, hey, you know, you go and you design your systems for monocrop, and yeah, now you've got to have a way of mitigating your pest problems, but this is the number one thing that you get out of permaculture, well, maybe number three. First, we eliminate the irrigation, uh, then we el- eliminate the need for any kind of Fertilization. And then, number three, we eliminate the need to be concerned about pests. And uh, I think, I, and I, I wrote down the thing that, uh, that he said that I thought was just poetry human orchestrated ecosystem and so he talked quite a bit about like if nature was in charge here here's what nature would do and here's where we come in and we observe nature and we tweak things a little bit in such a way that we have a human orchestrated ecosystem and and I think that that's uh, just a a brilliant way to put that
1: I do too I like that term as well you know I've used the term natural farming for years and other people have used nature farming or farming with nature but I like, I like human orchestrated ecosystem. I think that that makes sense, as long as we don't orchestrate it too much. I, I did want to mention about the pest system that, that his third principle, time, is a really important component there. I think uh, I've been working with a lot of people uh, the last six or eight months who are designing diverse systems, and within the design phase, uh, some of them are having serious uh, pest problems but that it is a, a, a when you move from a disturbed system uh, even if it's not a mo- monoculture but a disturbed system to a more stable system with the uh, biodiversity that he's talking about interactive diversity that th- that there's a time component and at some point you will move away from the pest problems mm-hmm. but for example this, this summer I designed some remarkably diverse Systems for annual vegetables. In fact, there were people who couldn't find the commercial crop. The weeds and other other legumes were so expensive. I have some lovely photos of this that I'm going to get on my website. Soon. And
0: this is about your the, the 2,000 acre organic farm that you were right. managing this last summer.
1: Right. I, I did experiments with broccoli because I thought they could compete with almost anything I could throw at them. And uh, I have to say, we did still harvest, but um it was there were times when you could not find the broccoli we 'll just put it that way. It was pretty entertaining i and
0: suppose. you couldn 't find the broccoli, but how was that broccoli
1: and that 's the interesting thing is I was very surprised to find that uh, we had towards the, the beginning of August we had a second batch of um cabbage whites, uh cabbage worm butterflies move in and I saw them coming and I watched them, but I missed, and we had some worms in broccoli for about three, three pickings until I uh, got some bacillus thuringiensis sprayed on them. So I really believed from all my work that the system was so diverse, and there were so many predators, lots of predators, uh, that they would take care of the worms, uh, but the the population numbers just weren't uh weren't high enough to deal with the prodigious population numbers of the uh of the cabbage worm.
0: But you're still growing in something that's closer to a monocrop than what we just saw.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And so if you think that you were growing your broccoli, Jeff Lawton style, would you have any problem then with uh, any of your insects?
1: Well, I never had any problem for the last seven or eight years growing uh, uh, broccoli on my farm, which was still, well, it couldn't be called a monocrop, but I would have six hundred foot rows of broccoli and then Clover next to it and something else next to it and uh, and then native woody species scattered throughout. But I, yeah, and actually I have the data. Uh, Another thing I need to get up on my website uh, this winter is the uh, two years of research into why that system worked. We found out exactly who our free ecosystem providers were that were making sure that we didn't have worms in the broccoli. And so I thought that that would Occur, uh, but it's it's timing and it's it's number of number of population individuals that we didn't have enough of. And then I've been talking
0: probably history from from the year before. Plays oh, part. oh,
1: exactly, a- absolutely, and and history in the whole region. It was a big vegetable growing region. I, I've also been talking to uh, some folks who are trying to do um, a veganic gardening in British Columbia. Which is a human place, and uh, along the coast, and they are using um, uh, high carbon inputs to begin with their garden. So they they did a lot of what's called uh, uh, green branch chipping, and their whole garden was 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 a very high carbon mulch, and they have been decimated, <laughs> absolutely decimated by um, pill bugs and sow bugs. Uh, which were never an issue for me when I gardened in the same area of British Columbia. So again, uh, I think it's uh, a lack of diversity of uh, of materials. Instead of just adding only woody materials when you begin, you, uh, you, you I, I think it's it's also key to have uh, the leguminous green species as well. So uh, so anyway. Um, I guess what I wanted to just point out is that yes, diversity will keep you from having uh, uh, from having uh, uh, pest problems, but there is timing and the kind of of, of carbon fast carbon pathway that you choose. It, it needs to be a diverse. A diverse fast carbon pathway, not just all one form of carbon or plant residue added. Does that make sense? Yes.
0: Yes. And and then for the people that are living um in that particular area, there's this book called Growing Vegetables West of the Cascades which um has a section in it that talks about some kinda critter in the soil that is just really gone bonkers in that region and so organic farmers really struggle with it and that they, they go and they put all their organic matter into the soil and then suddenly it's like on year two or three everything just turns sad. And and it's kinda like a and, and so now I've, I've talked to some organic farmers out in that area where they, I, I believe there's a certain kind of grass, so they, they try and do these crop rotations or, or mix this certain kind of grass in, which apparently exudes something that makes this soil critter sad, so the soil critter can't make your crops sad. And, and you're, you're nodding your head because you're familiar with
1: it? Yeah, simphylums are, are actually exactly the same as the pill bugs and the sow bugs. That Basically what they are are primary decomposers. They, they, we need them. They're, they're I, I mean, I've never really actually considered them a pest until I saw what they could do in the Northwest uh U.S. and in British Columbia, but. But their main job is to decompose woody material, like the fungi that Jeff Lawton was talking about. These guys are the teeth of decomposition. They're what we call the shredders of the food, soil food web. They're the first the first shredders of, of decomposed material so the fungi, bacteria, and actinomycetes can act on them. But. If you grow, if you have a lot of organic residue, and, and, and here's my theory, uh, which I'd like to test, by the way, is that if you have a monoculture, so to speak, of organic residue, you add the same kinds of organic residue every year, you build up specific shredders. And these symphylums are, are becoming problematic where there are high residue every year similar kinds of residue so if you have diversification you aren't going to have so much of this problem uh, my neighbors actually had problems with the sow bugs in British Columbia and, and I didn't I think uh, but they were adding all one kind of residue and I was adding uh, dry leaves seaweed green manure so fresh raw legumes fresh raw seaweed very decomposed forest leaves I, I really think that managing for diversity is is key not only in plant species but in the kind of residues you add, and, and that's what I love about what Jeff Lawton just did. Is except for his kitchen garden, he wasn't bringing in any residues. He was managing diversity of residues by managing diversity of plants. So now moving down the list of the of the different
0: things that um, that I wrote down, um, uh, and so now I want to start picking on Jeff Lawton, which you know you might you might kick me for doing this, but uh, um, I. Right at the very beginning he had a he had a chicken pen system, so it looked like a Salatin pen uh, kind of kind of across from a salatin style pen and uh, a the, a chicken tractor and it was very tall, so it looked like you know they could move it in such a way that they could eh, possibly have some shrubs in the pen as they moved it maybe it, but it was designed it took four people to move their kind of smallish pen. i mean it was smaller definitely smaller than a salatin pen although taller but obviously very heavy and i was kind of thinking well that's that's not a particularly good design so so that was one thing i want to i wanted to pick on and then um uh I, I like this position about um, a fast carbon species i i hadn't I hadn't really thought of it that way but yes that's a big thing that you're doing you are getting you're trying to pick out plants that are going, going to go out there and just suck carbon out of the air and make big plants really fast and then you're going to turn all that carbonaceous material into your mulches and and uh, your your organic matter in the soil so you're going to go from zero, zero dirt cementy knot soil into awesome soil that doesn't need any irrigation or fertilization or any of that kind of thing. So, uh, looking at it as as like, okay, I want to pick out the species that are fast carbon species at the beginning. These are going to, the the species that are going to get things started. He said something about how shade is better than mulch and it was like one of those things where you, you, I I, I heard him say it and my mind just started to buzz with, oh yeah, I can kind of, See that yeah I mean I don't think it's universally like an absolute truth but I think there's a lot of truth to
1: it but he was saying that in a specific instance so he was that was when he was talking about timing which which was beautiful he was talking about when you release the plants into the sunlight and when you don't and so his point was that you you release them right before a rainy season period or during a rainy period when evapotranspiration uh, was less than the rainfall. Remember that? So when evapotranspiration was less than rainfall, that's the time to create the open release areas. And at that at that point, then the mulch is better than the shade. But when it's too sunny and hot and, and the evapotranspiration is much higher than the rainfall, then in that case, shade is better than the mulch. That's what he meant in that case. Certainly not... All the time Oh yeah
0: Not a a universal Yeah And it was It was very specific And yet it got my brain Going on a lot of different paths Mm -hmm. um, About and, And for one thing Shade is better than mulch In that like because a lot of times when we say the word mulch we're talking about mulch that we do mulch that we introduce and I'm thinking well shade is something that requires really no effort at all on our parts um, whereas the mulch therefore in that respect a different but you're you're right not a universal truth but there's a lot of truth to it
1: well I, I think more important than even focusing on shade versus mulch is the timing issue that where we need to be wise and good observers of nature is to see when to intervene in the ecosystem and when not to.
0: Um, Another point that I have done here is that he was planting trees from seed um, not all of them. Some of them he started in pots, in a little greenhouse. But there was also quite a few that he was indeed starting from seed. And so I, I'd be, uh, I'd like to know how he would choose which ones were the ones that he started from pots, and which ones were the ones that he was starting directly from seed. I'm actually kind of like willow, because like willow is going to be really easy to, to to plant from a twig, you know. And maybe maybe some are just easy to do that way. And other ones it's, they can be a little pickier. Although I would, you know, argue. Um, I wonder if if you just plant added ten times more seeds if that would be less work than doing the whole greenhouse thing.
1: I I thought he explained that pretty well. He was, the ones that they were planting from seed were the quick, fast ones that were going to be, remember he had that list, some were going to be in there for three to five years, some five to ten years, and then some for as long as any of us will be thinking and so the the trees from seed were the uh, first second uh, first and second recovery level plants and then the ones that they they planted in the nursery were the ones that were going to be the 10 percent left at the end and then remember that he actually even bought in some of the fruit trees so they tried to produce most of what they were going to put out but some of the fruit trees they wanted specific varieties and so they bought those in
0: right so um, polyculture he mentions polyculture I mean we definitely saw a lot of polyculture going on there and um, uh, and this is this is the one thing where as I'm you know uh, uh, cutting up your bits of video and and getting you know uh, um, your video uh, up on YouTube from several years ago uh, uh, I keep wishing that it had it was more polyculture-esque, but I, I also know that it's from you know a long time ago before you started doing as much of it.
1: Well, for a commercial farm, actually, the, uh, my system is considered a, a huge polyculture to have trees and shrubs uh, on the edges and to have basically no bare soil so showing, um, and, I, and I think. Uh, for commercial farming, where you're trying to actually make a living, I'm still uh, I'm still going in uh, in that direction. I, I personally don't have to anymore because I don't have to make uh, a living at it. Uh, but if I were trying to make a living at it, I would probably not do uh, a food forest. I would have parts of my system in, into a food forest, but uh, but the main part in which I was trying to actually make some money at, I would do the way Fukuoka does it or I would do the way uh, the way I did it.
0: So even after all this mm-hmm. you would still plant i mean granted between your rows it was jam-packed full of all kinds of different things uh, i i your, your pennycrass video is the last one i uploaded i thought that was really spectacular what a what an amazing plant to to encourage um, and it costs you nothing um, but okay so granted you had a polyculture ish i mean you know effectively it was dominated by probably three species in between the rows and then um, and then the last 10 percent would be filled in by whatever Opportuned to, to show up, um, uh, but so you know, calling it so it's not exactly a polyculture because you still have like a row of broccoli. But what if what if you had twice as many rows with half as much broccoli? Would that not be as good?
1: Well, I, I actually the whole system was was a polyculture when you consider that there were probably 20 different kinds of vegetables and then there was the native plant shrubby uh, hedgerow or the native plant woody species all within a one acre area you had uh, native herbaceous plants you had uh, uh, non-native legumes you had weeds weedy species you had um, half a dozen native shrubs so for you know for a farming system it was a lot of polyculture I think I would add well I was trying to Add uh, larger species, there are actually some woody species now that are that are getting bigger fruit trees uh, uh, there as well, uh, and raspberries and asparagus and so i I would move in more that direction, but no i would do I would definitely do rows within a, within a, a shrubby layer uh, or within a living mulch layer for sure. So the
0: video clips I've been uploading are about five years old. Mm-hmm. And and now, uh, as we saw a certain level of polyculture there. I'm going to make up a number. I'm going to call it polyculture five, by and and basically by because on average a plant could probably its roots might touch five different species. Um, and, and and I imagine that in your last year of doing this stuff, you probably touched on to more like polyculture fifteen. And then and then what we just saw in Jeff Lawton's stuff was probably something on the. Order of Polyculture Forty, mm-hmm. um, and so now, if, if, if you were determined um, <clears throat> to, to to go back in, into uh, market garden business, which is you were very successful at that, then um, uh, what, what what level of polyculture do you suppose that you would do, um, you know, starting next season?
1: Well, I think I. Would do um, berries, fruit trees, vegetables, living mulches, native herbaceous and native woody species all together. Uh, but I'd still do them within harvestable rows because when you're when you're trying to make a living at it, you you need to have volume. You need to have volume from uh, from a, a, a concentrated area unless you have lots and lots of land, and land is no. Object. Well, you didn't
0: have a fair bit of land out there.
1: Yep, yep. And I could have definitely done more. In fact, I was moving towards more and more orchard uh, and more and more perennials uh, in terms of at least raspberries and asparagus and strawberries um, and native plants that then I used for seed for the native plant nursery. But I would, I would, if I were trying to make a living, I would continue in that. In that vein, just because I I know what how hard it is to make a living.
0: So poly, you would continue with polyculture fifteen.
1: Uh, yeah, I think polyculture fifteen.
0: Okay, that's, yeah. that's what I was shooting for. I was shooting for the yeah. number. I was trying to get an idea of like how polyculture would it be. Because granted, once you've got like two or three species together, you can say, oh, that's a polyculture. But I don't think that that's as a resilient of a polyculture oh, no. as when you get further down the road. And so as you experienced last year, you probably had a Polyculture 4 going on, and then you had an insect problem. But then up here, um, you had a a system that had been going for several years building a rich Polyculture, and then you had Polyculture 15, and then you did not have the problem. But... That might be better for another podcast at some other point.
1: It sounds good. Okay. So, um,
0: uh, n- now I've got my note about the, uh, the, on the fungi, how Jeff Lawton was saying, um, uh, the fungi are cycling the carbon. <laughs> They're moving it around, and it's the teeth of the soil, whereas you were talking about the pill bugs being the teeth of the soil, and he's saying the fungi. And, I, and so I think both cases, uh, work. Then, then you went into a whole section of the video called Working with Weeds. And then he actually used the phrase, a designer weed system. And uh, I, I, I think that that goes really good with a video I've uploaded uh, recently and a lot of the videos. But I'm trying to do to, you to, like my Mullen? Did you ever see my Mullen video? Yes. And did you think it was awesome?
1: Of course, Paul. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm making sure to give you a loaded question. The answer is built right in. You know, I, you know what I, to say. I
1: got that, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. So um, I, I think that a lot of the weeds that we're working with are really misunderstood. I, I think your video about the pending crest is a, is a great example. There's a weed that we all see everywhere and most people just want to spray it. I, I visited with the guy that manages this uh, alfalfa that I stare at all day and uh, and I said, uh, I said, what do you do when you see a mullin plant? And so, so his first question was, "What's a mullen plant?" And and so I pointed one out, and he said, "Oh, I spray it." And and uh, and so I explained to him what it what it does, and um, I kind of get the impression he might not spray it anymore. Like, "Oh, it's working for me. Well, good." So uh, moving along. Uh, he talked in the video a bit about grasshoppers versus turkeys. Uh, and he's basically, he was saying that, you know, if you, if you see grasshoppers in your system, that's because you don't have enough ground birds, birds, birds that tend to stick to the ground. And, um, uh, and so, you know, another example of something where you're, you're doing it wrong. Um, he mentioned weeds repair the landscape, which I think is a big part of what my Mullen video was about. Um, I I love the part where he talks about a food forest, and once you've got it established, the maintenance is optional. If if you go in and you work on it, you get more production per acre, but you don't have to. You can just let it go, and then um, uh, it'll continue to produce food. You don't need to do anything more. Um. Uh, he went, and so I don't know if anybody remembers this, but the big black book the uh, by Bill Mollison uh, is published by Tagari Publications. And um, and so as part of this video, we went to Tagari Farm, and he pointed out that no one has been to this farm. No one's done anything on this farm for seven years. And and the, the weeds and the vines were like taking over the buildings. It was like something out of a Jurassic Park movie,
2: um,
0: and then yeah, they walked into a food forest that they had set up like just before leaving the farm, and uh, it was large and awesome and productive. And no one had fooled with it in seven years. Um, uh, in fact, one of the things he said was, seven years ago, all of this was grass," and, and so you can kind of imagine uh, a system in Australia where it would be like this grassy, deserty kind of thing. And said, "There's a jungly kind of thing."
1: Well, no, it wasn't. It was more than seven years ago. It was before they started the food forest. They walked away from the food forest seven years ago.
0: Yeah, so I was thinking nine years ago. But at one point, I mean, he, he, there were probably multiple different food forests that they were looking at. And at one point, I was a little surprised that he said it, because otherwise he would have said nine years ago this was grass. But he did indeed say, seven years ago, all of this was grass.
1: But but that wasn't the food forest part that he was taking us into. That was the part around, around the buildings where it was still grassy, and then we moved into food forest. This was in a food forest. And he said, and he said this. So I'm I'm
0: thinking that some of the food forests that he showed were like two years old when they left, and some of them may have been freshly planted when he left.
1: I didn't get that, but maybe
0: I didn't get that. But he did say, at one point, he pointed at one food forest and he said, this was two years old when we left. This had had been established two years before we left. And then at one point in time, he's standing in a food forest, and he says, seven years ago, all of this, referring to the food forest that he's currently standing in, all of this was grass. So I was kind of thinking, oh, that must have been one they built just before they left. And, And at the beginning of the video, then it's like, okay, there's a food forest over there that's three years old, and there's a food forest over there that's six years old, and, of course, we're building this one right, now so um, uh, uh, that was how I came to that conclusion but uh, um, I I, and in fact when Jeff Lawton has his video which is on YouTube he's got a couple of videos on YouTube about this the greening the desert videos where he goes to Jordan and it's desert and and uh, and he plants stuff, and then he walks away and then we got a video seven years later, and it's this lush green jungle, and no one's really done anything with it. so um all right, well anyway, we're done. Anything else to say? Not for me. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permes dot com where we talk about food forests, homesteading, and permaculture all the time